0: Thanks, Hildy. All right. Uh, So this morning, uh, again, we are continuing in our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount that we've been in for quite some time now. Um, And again, it's a sermon series that we've been calling Through the Looking Glass, because in it we've been seeing how Jesus is about the task of shifting and reorienting the perspective of his disciples and equipping them for life in his kingdom. Um, Today, uh, at long last, we are finishing our series within the series on the Lord's Prayer with the last and the final petition there of the Lord's Prayer. um, Lead us not to temptation and deliver us from the evil one. Um, But just a quick recap of what we've been at in the last few weeks in particular, we're in the section of the prayer, the second half of the prayer, where Jesus is teaching us to ask for our most basic daily needs, both physical and spiritual. Uh, and we began by asking for our very ordinary but essential physical needs, right, our daily bread. Um, and then we confessed our deepest and most fundamental need was to be forgiven, and because, uh, because of this, the very logical next thing for us to ask for is for strength in our day-to-day fight against sin and Satan. John Stott put it this way. He said, the, the sinner whose evil in the past has been forgiven longs to be delivered from, it, from its tyranny rather, in the future. Um, and in, in the Reformed theological camp, we yeah. often talk about these concepts using two big words. We talk about it saying justification and sanctification. Um, And just quickly, uh, justification is, is a courtroom word and refers to God declaring us to be free from our sin. But not simply pardoned or given a clean slate. Justification really means that we have been declared righteous because the perfect spotless righteousness of Jesus has been credited to you. If you're a Christian, God hasn't simply declared you to be innocent of past crimes, but rather he's declared you to be perfect. And last week we talked about our need for this, right? Our need to be forgiven, our need to be justified. But this week we're talking about what it means then to live a life of obedience in keeping with that justification, to walk in a manner worthy of someone who has been called perfect. And we often refer to this as sanctification, right? This is the lifelong, ongoing process of progressively becoming more and more what we have already been declared to be, being shaped and formed more and more into the image of Christ. And the Bible says that Christians have been made into new creations, right? That we've been raised to new life with Christ. And so naturally, we ought to want to live as such. And so we ask, leave us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This seems simple enough of a request. However, if we read it closely and thoughtfully, this petition yet again raises some questions for us. Like everything else in this prayer, uh, there are layers and layers of meaning to this petition and requires some unpacking. And so this morning we're going to discuss uh, just three implications that arise out of this petition. Uh, and those three are the fact that one, temptation is inevitable. Two, therefore, we must be vigilant and prepared. And three, we need a deliverer. Um, and we have a deliverer. And Jesus, spoiler alert. Um, all right, so first we're going to talk about how temptation is inevitable. Temptation is inescapable in this life. And of course, the the type of temptation that I'm talking about here is the moral kind, right? The enticement to sin. Um, Because we are fallen people living in a fallen world, we can count on being sorely tempted towards sin in this life. And so it seems, at least on the surface, that Jesus is saying that we are to pray that the Father would not lead us into temptation of this sort, that is, temptation to sin. Now, that is a curious idea because, on one hand, it acknowledges God's sovereignty in that it sees that God is the ultimate author of our lives, and this is true. And yet, on the other hand, the Bible is also very clear that God will not, and in fact, by virtue of his sinless nature, cannot tempt anyone to sin or be responsible for our sin in any way. Right? James 1, very famous uh, text says when tempted no one should say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So God doesn't tempt anyone. The reason we're tempted is because our hearts are filled with wayward desires and the devil knows it and so he happily tempts us but God does not. So why would we ask him then in this prayer to not lead us into temptation? Why would we ask him not to do something that he would never do anyway or that he could not do anyway? Like last week, there must be something else going on here, right? Uh, firstly, uh, biblical scholars point out that it isn't until the writing of the New Testament that the word that is translated here as temptation was ever used in this moral sense. Rather, it was typically used to refer to testing. Um, And not testing like an examination of knowledge in a specific area, but testing, uh, putting an object or a material through a strenuous trial in order to prove or improve its quality by revealing any weakness or impurity in it. It's a long definition, but... um, An example of this in the first century uh, would have been the silver trade, um, where silversmiths would take lumps of silver and they would heat it in iron pots until it became molten liquid. And then as it cooled, the dross or the impurities in it would come to rest on the top so they could uh, scoop or scrape it away. Uh, They would heat and cool and heat and cool, and this process would be repeated until no dross remained and you were left with a pure product, right? And this concept of testing so as to reveal and remove impurity fits much better here uh, because just as Scripture is clear that God doesn't tempt us to sin, it is also clear that He does, however, test the quality of His children's faith and obedience with regularity. Right? Uh, James 1, again, at the beginning of that chapter, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And he goes on a few verses later, he said, Blessed is the one who, who perseveres under trial, because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. He says, blessed is the one. Now, we've been in this series for a long time now, but if you think back to where it all began in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes, doesn't this language sound familiar? Right? Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The pure in heart. Those who are purified by standing the test will see God. They will receive the crown of life, as James says. So you see, testing and trials are about producing this kind of purity of heart through the process of revealing and removing impurities. Um, And we see this kind of testing all throughout Scripture, but one spot in particular where it's very obvious is in the wilderness wanderings of Israel, right? After after they had wandered in the desert for... um, 40 years, long enough for the Exodus generation to have died off, Moses sits the whole nation down and prepares them to uh, take possession of the promised land. And there in Deuteronomy 8, he says this to them He says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. So you see, God tested his people for 40 years to prepare this next generation to dwell with him as his people in his promised land. Um, Now, of course, they failed these tests over and over again. And if we think we would have done any better, then I think scripture is pretty clear that uh, we wouldn't. But where Israel failed and where we fail, Jesus succeeds. Right Uh, In a related event, uh, we're in Matthew 6. But if we turn back to Matthew 4, there we see the, uh, the, the telling of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Jesus being tested in the wilderness right there in 4 verse 1. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the Holy Spirit the third person in the Trinity, God himself, right, led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This raises the question then, how do we know if we're being tested by God or tempted by the devil? And the answer is, ultimately, we don't need to know. It makes no difference because our response ought to be the same anyway. You know, the writer of Hebrews, when talking to his audience, or her audience, or whoever, uh, wrote this in chapter 12. It said, endure hardship as discipline. Right? It doesn't matter the source of your hardship. It doesn't matter what your circumstance is or your situation. He's saying, endure it as though it were discipline. Assume it's discipline. God is treating you as his children. Right? He goes on. He talks about what child is not disciplined by their father, Um and if you aren't disciplined by your father, then you're proving yourself not to be true sons and daughters at all, right? Then he goes on. Moreover, we, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So whether we are being tempted by the devil or tested by God or both, we are to endure it as discipline from our Heavenly Father. And this is not a punitive discipline. This is formative discipline, right? It's not punishment for sin, it's training in righteousness, right? It's not smack on the wrist, it's instruction. Because God is sovereign over all things, he can allow the devil to tempt us and use the experience for our good. Both things can be true at once with him. And the whole story of Joseph in the Old Testament, right in the second half of Genesis, is an illustration of how these things can be true at the same time, right? Uh, Joseph uh, explains this in chapter 50. This is when, uh, after his brothers had beaten him, taken his prized cloak, thrown him down a well, sold him into slavery, he worked his way up to the head of Potiphar's household. Then he's wrongfully accused by Potiphar's wife, gets thrown back in jail, has to work his way all the way back up again uh, until he becomes second in command in Egypt. And then when he finally gets his chance to confront his brothers who set him on this course... All those decades before. He says this in Genesis 50 verse 20. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. And so trials and temptations are inevitable in this life. Both because the devil, the world, and our own flesh want to see us fail. And because God wants to make us holy. So this brings us to our next big question then. If we know that these trials and tests that uh, it's through these trials and tests rather that God produces righteousness in us, then why would we ask to be spared from them, right? Why would we ask for Him to lead us not into temptation? Shouldn't we welcome them, right? Didn't James say to count it all joy whenever trials befall us? Yes, he did. But that doesn't mean we should have a casual attitude toward them. They are dangerous, and we don't stand a chance trying to face them alone. Rather, and this is point two, we must be vigilant and prepared. So the first line of the petition is really a setup for the second. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so it's not so much that we should ask God not to test us, but rather that he would never lead us into a test or trial that he would not also deliver us from. Why? Because the devil is a fierce and terrifying adversary. Make no mistake about it. 1 Peter 5 says this, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He is a restless oppressor, and he won't stop until he gets his kill or God intervenes. And this is why we pray this petition, right? Do not be ignorant or naive about your enemy. The assaults come from all around us, and if we're not vigilant and aware, we'll be caught off guard and unprepared. That is why we include this petition in our daily prayer. We want to be ever mindful of our need for God to protect and uphold us in the face of life's trials. Again, John Stott says this. So behind these words, that is the words of this petition, that Jesus gave us to pray, are the implications that the devil is too strong for us, that we are too weak to stand up to him, and that our Heavenly Father will deliver us if we call upon him. Right? Our enemy is strong. But we also confess in this petition that we are weak. We need to be delivered, not only from the devil, but from our own pride and foolishness. Right? We often make ourselves easy targets for the devil. We allow distance to grow between us and God, and the God for on whom we rely for our protection. Right? He's given us ordinary everyday means through which he flows to us his extraordinary supernatural strength nourishment and training required for our daily battles but we neglect them right we neglect his word which is our god-ordained weapon of spiritual warfare Um, ephesians 6 very well-known passage about the armor of god right Putting on the armor of God. There, Paul says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So we've been given this armor. We've been given what we need in order to fight this battle and to withstand it. Right? He goes on to describe it in verse fourteen. He says, "Stand firm, them with the belt of." truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We've been given everything that we need to defend ourselves from an enemy, yet... More often than not, we're completely caught off guard and unprepared. And when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan in Matthew 4, the devil tries to twist the words of God in order to get Jesus to bend to his will. And how does Jesus overcome him there, right? By knowing and leaning on the words of Scripture. Right? How many of us, though, really know the Word of God? How many of us would be able to spot the devil's lies and to correct him and stand firm in his presence on our own? Right? No, we, generally speaking, neglect his Word. Right? We have so many things that we'd rather do than spend time getting to know our Heavenly Father who has graciously and plainly revealed himself to us in his Word. And in so doing, we make ourselves easy targets, right? But we also neglect the daily habit of prayer, many of us. Jesus is teaching this prayer to his disciples here because he knows how crucial it will be to their spiritual well-being. Right? And the Apostle Paul, uh, in the passage on the armor of God in Ephesians 6, goes on saying this in verse 18. He says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Prayer is, at least in part, about our vigilance and preparedness for battle. And yet, this too we often neglect. And when we do, we forget all of his warnings and his promises, right? David uh, in Psalm 19, you know, he's praising the word of God and he's talking about how it is, it's better than all of the best things in life, right? And he goes on, he says, By them is your servant warned, and in keeping them is great reward, right? Warnings and promises, crucial to our, our spiritual well being. And we see this clearly in uh, actually in 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul is talking about these wilderness-wandering stories of Israel from the Old Testament. And he's saying, look, um, he said, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So there's the warning, right? Now comes the promise. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Right? So no temptation is overtaking you. That is not common demand. He's saying, look, like if you're looking at Israel failing all of these tests in the wilderness and you think you would have done better, you're wrong. Temptation is common to all mankind. And there's nothing new and unique about the thing that you're struggling against. But God is faithful, and he will provide you with the way out. Right? So he promises us that we will be delivered from the clutches of the devil and his schemes against us. And he can promise that because Jesus withstood the temptations of the devil on our behalf. But more than that, he's overcome the devil. He's our deliverer, right? So when we pray, deliver us from the evil one. Every time we pray this prayer, it is an opportunity For us to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is our Deliverer. Remember last week, um, we finished the sermon by considering the historical context of these words. Um, Jesus was teaching and preparing his disciples for what was to come, right? It's the inauguration of the kingdom age. He's about to fulfill the earliest forms of the gospel message which were all about deliverance from the evil one. Jesus was about to mortally wound the devil. He was about to crush Satan's head, freeing us from his clutches by going to the cross in our place. And it was these events that were foretold all throughout the Old Testament. Think of just one example of the wilderness testing of Israel. In Numbers 21, we read about the Israelites um, they're growing impatient. God is teaching them to rely on him for their daily needs, uh, to trust him. And they grow impatient with their wandering in circles, I guess, in the wilderness. And they start to get angry at God and Moses. And they complain about how boring the food is that God miraculously provides for them every morning. And they anger the Lord in this. right? And so he sends poisonous snakes to punish them. And when they realize what they've done, they cry out to Moses to pray on their behalf and to deliver them. And so Moses prays to God, and God tells Moses to fashion a snake out of bronze and to put it on a stake and to lift it up, and that anyone who's been bitten by these poisonous snakes who looks at this snake lifted up to deliver us from the poison of sin that entered the world on the fangs of the serpent, Satan. If we look to him alone for our deliverance, he will surely accomplish it on our behalf. Um, I often quote this hymn because it's one of my favorites. It's so good, though, I can't apologize for it. Um, Before the throne of God above, the second verse goes like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, right? When Satan tempts me to forget What Jesus has done for me and make me wallow in my sin, right? In my guilt. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, right? That is what we are celebrating and being reminded of every time we pray the words of this petition. And remember that this is a relational prayer. This is a conversation between father and child. And so we pray these things ultimately because we desire that nothing should again come between us and our Heavenly Father. And because Jesus has delivered us once and for all from the attacks of the evil one, there never will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in your uh, sovereignty, wisdom, and grace, you've seen fit to use the trials and temptations of this life to shape and to mold us more, more and more into the image of your Son, our Savior and deliverer, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank and praise you for your commitment to our sanctification and to your provision of everything that we require along the way for your daily means of grace that you provide for us. Lord, teach us to embrace them, to hold fast to them, and deliver us, Lord, from the evil one by them. In the name of our Deliverer and our righteousness, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right. Um, before we go to communion uh, typically what we do at the end of the service or the sermon is we allow a few moments for any questions that may have arisen Um, and we do have a few moments if you want to ask a question Um, you're also, if you don't want to raise your hand and speak here you're free to uh, text me right there Um, yeah, if, if, if you don't feel uh, compelled to ask a question now and something strikes you later that you would like to ask about, then you can text me anytime uh, or send me an email. and I'd be happy to uh, engage with you in that. Um, but if that's it, if there's no questions, then I'm going to turn things over to our brother Steve. Uh, to leave us in communion.